0: Teaching Python. This is episode 90, and it's all about equitable learning. My name is Sean Tiber. I'm a coder that teaches.
1: And my name is Kelly Schuster-Paredes, and I'm a teacher that codes.
0: So Kelly, we have a pretty exciting guest to share with everyone this week. We have David Cavallo joining us. And welcome, David. It's wonderful to have you here.
2: Thank you very much. It's really a pleasure to be with you.
0: So brief introduction, Kelly, if you would uh, share a little bit about David for everyone.
1: So I saw David's name in the, the book, Things to Do with a Computer, Ford 50. And this is a great book. We shared it out on our, our podcast a couple of times, I think, a while ago. And there's a lot of great people in there. The, the Tom from Bird Brains wrote an article in there as well. And I saw David's and I read his article and it really uh, connected to some of the things that I enjoy talking about, computational understanding, South America. I mean, right there, it just stopped. <laughs> <laughs> and David is the director of Centro de Innovación y Diseño Avanzado in Chile, which is, he's the director of Ascent Innovation Center in Advanced Design. Um, he's a researcher at the Institute of Advanced Studies, USP. USP stands for?
2: Universidad de São Paulo. Brazil,
1: San Paulo, been there. Adjunct professor at the Mindful Making Lab in Chile, and he focuses on learning and computation, particularly for improving learning for just equitable societies. So as you can imagine, when we saw that, we were like, yes, we have to get him on our show. There's so many more other things he does. He's a Distinguished Visiting Professor at UFSB, which is UF.
2: Universidade <laughs> Federal do Sul de Bahia, the Federal University of South of Bahia. Also, Bruce. Oh, wow. Although I'm nice. not there anymore.
1: Not there anymore. He was the chief learning architect and vice president for education of One Laptop per Child, research scientist, and co director with Seymour Papert of the Future of Learning Group at MIT Media Laboratory. And I love that. He hates writing bios and addressing himself. So that's a good thing I addressed him for him. So <laughs> welcome. So I'm so excited to have this conversation with you, David.
2: No, thank you. And, and I, I want to emphasize how important I think your podcast and other such things are that uh, really did get deeper into the culture, the kind of things that we believe in that can happen through computation and learning with computation.
1: Thank you. We are really excited about the podcast too. This is where most of my lesson plans come from. We talk to amazing people and I go, oh, that's a great idea.
2: Okay. <laughs> so the pressure's on.
1: The pressure's yeah. on, David.
2: Okay. <laughs> All right. So
0: Before we get into your background and experiences, David, and and before we get into our conversation, let's start in the same place we always do, which is the wins of the week. So a place where we can talk about something good that's happened inside or outside of the classroom, uh, and you can share anything you want. And David, we'll make you go first because you're our guest, and it's always fun to make the guest go first. Oh, my gosh. Uh,
1: Surprise!
2: (laughs) Wins of the week mean a win that we had this last week, or it's just one you're going to mention? It's one you're
1: going to mention. If yeah. it happened this week, awesome. Some people, hopefully you're having a lot more wins, you know, in your life. So it could be as silly as, well, I don't know, some, I'm trying to think of Sean, some of Sean's silly ones. He <laughs> is just being able to wake up and get to class on time. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Take our wins where we can. But yeah. no, I guess I really want to mention the kind of movement and excitement that's happening in Chile at the moment that, uh. There's a new government, a lot of young people, more women as ministers than men for the first time there ever, and, but also developing of a new constitution that arose out of people looking at the inequality that was ongoing, the environmental crises that are happening, you know, violence in society, and saying, we really need to make it different. And so from seeing the the lab, we're really working on a kind of computational tool for kind of like participatory planning for urban planning, urban development, that is trying to give voice to people that don't usually get voice, but using computation for it because before we had kind of static design tools or we had you know, just kind of talking your way through things and written. And that left a lot of people out, particularly in a country like Chile. So we're taking kind of the things we get from programming computers and working with people that are new to it, but to express the ideas, the kind of things that you can do more computationally, like, you know, well... How do we look at it systemically? How do these different things fit together in terms of waste and you know greening and and all of that? So I'm taking that in our new mindful making lab at a different university in Chile as wins of the week because it's really exciting.
1: That is exciting. Go ahead. It's Sean. definitely
2: it's definitely amazing and and
0: I think it's a great example of what happens when people. Understand that they can make a change, that they're not powerless, that they have the ability to make a change, especially when they work with others. One of the things that I've appreciated so much about computational learning and teaching computational ideas to people is that it is very empowering. It is something that they can use to change whatever part of the world that they want to, whether it's the world that is just around them and just in their own family or their own household, all the way up to changing their country and changing the way that they they work together and and establish their place in the world so i think that's a tremendous win to share and and a really good one to call out and there's that level of excitement around it it's a really important thing to do
1: i I can't add anything to it you said it all
0: (laughs) (laughs) all right kelly your turn
1: okay let's see um my win of the week so it's a new quarter of kids. So brand new group of kids. And did I have a win this week so far? Well, I didn't. I did. I actually sat there and I actually had a really good day yesterday, which was funny. And I'm going to tell the story as a win because sometimes starting a new quarter, you have to imagine I, right now I teach six, seventh and eighth, two classes of each four quarters in a year. So that's six times four, that's 24 times. I teach the same thing. And I sat back minus the, uh a couple that Sean taught earlier this year. <laughs> I sat back and I was looking at the kids and a lot of the kids that I'm teaching this quarter are ones that I have taught sixth and seventh grade. So I see, I'm like, were you in my class? They're like, yeah. And Mr. Tiber's, and they're like, no, yours. Like, oh yeah. Cause some, half of them I taught on virtual learning. So it was, they look a lot different. I just remember their names and just looking at them and talking to them. And then we were going over a few aspects in eighth grade after they had it. And they, I said, it's like riding a bike And we started talking about code and they just were, oh yeah, that's, that's, you know, you have to put an int in front of that input and, oh yeah, that's when that, that object. And and I was just like, yes, my work has paid off all these tears and, and, you know, crying for the past three years. And now we're getting to reap the benefit. And I didn't have that opportunity before because Sean taught eighth grade. So it was just a, it was a nice win yesterday. It was a nice win just watching this last quarter of eighth graders before they go to high school. And Sean's probably tearing up because that was his moment team <laughs> of seeing it. And so that was my win. That's
0: it a, really, a really good one. And and that is definitely one of the most fun things. In addition to teaching people for the first time, but seeing them be able to re- recall and reapply their previous knowledge and be able to, to get going that much faster and feel that confidence of, oh, I already know how to do this. That's a, that's a big win.
1: Yep, it was. How about you? You had a good one, you said.
0: Yeah, I have, a, I have a really good one. And, and I have to say something that has never happened to me in 25 years. And it was a moment of connection that I didn't expect. And I didn't anticipate. And it was straight out of the blue. And it was the most amazing win of the past, I don't know, several months. But the the short version of the story is that I'm originally from Anchorage, Alaska. I was born and raised. I grew up there, and then I left for college, and I haven't lived there since. I visited from time to time, and my parents still live there, and I have a bunch of extended family, but I live in South Florida now, and every day someone finds out that I'm from Alaska and they say, I've never met anyone from Alaska. That's what I hear all the time. It's pretty common because for those of you who aren't familiar with United States geography, Alaska and Florida are about as far apart as you can get, about 5,000 <laughs> miles apart and, and very different in many ways, culturally and socially and climate and everything. But I live here now and I love it. I'm by the ocean. It's great. And uh, on on Saturday, I was wearing a t-shirt that I had gotten the last time that I was in Anchorage that was for the local university, the UAA Seawolves. And I took my son to the park and he was playing on the playground and I was hanging out in the shade watching. And this woman came over and said to me, I know this is weird, but why are you wearing that t-shirt? And I said, Oh, well, I grew up in Anchorage and just, you know, I'm wearing the the local, local school shirt. And she said, Well, I grew up in Anchorage also. We got to talking, and it turns out that she went to the high school that was, you know, across town from mine, not, not far away. We graduated the same year from high school and have several mutual friends. And she and her husband and family have been living here in Florida about five miles away from me for the last nine years. So <laughs> we have this amazing connection. We got this moment to send a, a picture to our mutual friends of the two of us hanging out in South Florida together to kind of shock them a bit. And it turns out that she has children who are about the same age as my kids. So we're going to get them together for a play date and hang oh, out. Sean's and, got and a
1: new up. friend. He's happy.
0: <laughs> I, made, I made a new friend. But I, I can tell you this is the first time in 25 years that I've ever met someone from Alaska that I you know didn't know before but knew people that I did. So that, that there was that connection. And when I reflected on it, it occurred to me the combination of events of me wearing this particular T-shirt. And the backstory is that the only reason I have that t-shirt, because I'm not used to wearing t-shirts for other people's schools. I barely wear t-shirts for the the schools that I went to. <laughs> but I got it when I was there in September of last year for my uncle's funeral, who was the facilities director at UAA in Anchorage for many, many years. And every time I wear it, I think of him and I, I honor him by wearing the t-shirt. It's just a small thing. But because of that, I made a new friend and a new connection across the country that was uh, was surprising and delightful. So that was my my win this
1: week. Very nice. Yeah. Very nice. Did you have, and not to switch really topics really quick, but I'm really so excited to talk to David, but did you have any fails?
0: <laughs> um, yeah. I,
1: <laughs> I have a major fail that I need help with and I'm going to use this as a podcast thing and maybe you can solve it real quick. I ordered these Gemma's. Okay. They're not the Gemma M.O., I emailed Prof G. I emailed Scott at Ada. They do not show up on my computer. And then when you plug them into a PC, you already know the answer to this, don't you? I plug them into a PC, it shows up as a trinket. This is only for... Arduino. Arduinos.
0: It does does not support CircuitPython.
1: It doesn't even show up.
0: Right. Because the, the USB drive of a CircuitPython device is something that's built into CircuitPython.
1: And I swear I ordered Gemma MOs, but I think I got the wrong one. So I have, if anybody wants Arduinos, email me. I have about 40 of them. (laughs) There you go.
0: Well, we will use them for something.
1: Another fail. Yep. Yep. So you learn every day, David. (laughs) Anyone?
0: My fail this week is really home automation fails. Just uh, that was my pandemic project was to make my house... I wouldn't say a smart house, but maybe a little less dumb. And everything's been haywire this week. So, lights won't turn off. Lights, uh, oh, sorry, our bathroom light was on for three days straight until I figured out how to fix that. Just lots of little things. But, you know, I've made myself a little checklist of here's all the problems and issues that I need to go resolve. And I'm just knocking them off one by one and apologizing profusely to my family as I go (laughs) to make sure that they're okay with it. So, that's been my fail this week. And it's not a, it's not a major deal. It's just an annoyance, but you know, something that I can go fix at
2: least. So that reminds me of what I say. I wasn't going to say this at first, but it is my epic fail which is that I've been saying for years I wanted to learn to play the cavaquinho, which is like the small stringed instrument. It's like, I think it's about an octave off from a ukulele, but it's used in samba here, mm-hmm. all this wonderful music. And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to learn it next year. This is my year to learn it. So my wife gave me a cavaquinho and it's like, okay. And my epic fail is that I still haven't even tuned the damn thing. <laughs> and so that really is my epic fail. And so I hope that uh, this inspires me to get busy.
1: Okay. I'm going to send you the link that we did with our sixth grade advisory class today on time management. And you have 30 minute blocks and you have to schedule these things. Otherwise, they don't get done.
2: (laughs) Well, well, that's exactly right. I mean, it's like in my mind, I'm telling myself, all right, because I'm always, I have, I usually put too many things on my plate and then they always take longer than I expect. And it was one of the things in software that I could never understand is like, how, how do you want me to, tell you how long this project's going to take if we've never done it before and it's non-trivial, right? 12 months, 20 months, who knows, right? So I'm really bad at that. And so it's always been my excuse, like, all right, I'll just finish this and then I'll get to it. And of course you finish that and that takes longer. So you have three more things on your stack. It's
1: crazy. That's crazy. Um, Tell us, sorry, I'm going to jump in on Sean. Tell us a little bit about your bio. First of all, do you code? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's a silly question, but do you code? <laughs> and then what do you code in?
2: It's changed. When I worked at the AI lab at Digital a long time ago, everybody would say you know, to a customer because you build big systems for them and they'd say, oh, we're going to look at the problem and see what it is and then we'll choose the most appropriate language for that problem. But at that point, it was a lie you know, because everybody programmed on a complex system in the language they were most, most comfortable in. But the world's changed since then. And I think what's become good now is that you really do have those languages that if you're doing this and it's communication on the web or whatever it might be, you have languages that are better for it because they take care of some of the stuff you don't want to be bothered with. It doesn't get you closer to solving the problem. Well, it does, but you know, it's not the big way of thinking about the problem. And so, you know, so that's changed. And so now it's like because of so many things going across the browser, there's JavaScript. But I think for learning and for beginning, I'm still very much in the Python camp because it's interpreted, which I think for students is really important that you do something and you see what changed because of what you did. And you don't go through the extra steps of compiling, et cetera, et cetera. And it has tons of libraries, so it can get you into different kind of places to do things. And then as you move forward further, it also has, you know, you know, nice IDEs and stuff, so like development debugging environments. So you can do serious things in them and not just, you know, get stuck. So so changes and I'm much more eclectic than I used to be, but I think it's a good thing. I think it's a sign of advance.
0: The only thing I would add to that in in terms of like what I've been appreciating more and more about Python lately as well is that it feels like the language is a is a thin layer on top of the thinking right so that you are thinking about the things that are interesting and important to solve and you're not spending time on the things that are not interesting or
2: not critical to to solving the problem that you really want to solve right would you agree with that no absolutely I think that's exactly right because especially working with students or people that are new to programming you don't want you want that thin layer there. You want them to really be focused on like, right, even to the, you know, existential point. It's like, why should I care about programming? Well, you want to make something happen. You want to make, you want to see something. You want to understand something. And so the less layer, the fewer layers that you have in between that, all the better. You want to think about the, the actual project. And that's that.
1: It was funny. Today we had a class challenge. I, I do little class challenges. So this is a second day, mind you. This is how mean of a teacher I am. They came in the seventh graders and I was like, what are we going to do today? What are we going to do today? And they're all you know, talking. I'm like, class challenge. And, what? I said, hey. And I was kind of getting a little frustrated with this group because they're very talkative and they like to give up a lot. This is a sp- particular group of 17 kids that I've known last year. They were the same way. And I said to them, if you can't even write the problem in English, then you're never going to code it the way you want it to. And so they said, What? I said, Look at the problem. And the problem was taken, was one of Sean's writings, his code. So it's a little bit ambiguous, but not really, but it writes it out like a word problem. So it said something like, We're you know, going to calculate to see if a triangle is a triangle, or not based on three angles, taken a number for for every single angle on a separate line. And here's a sample of what the output would be, right? And the kids were like, I don't even know how to do this. I said, okay, in English, in the comments, write your first step. Well, what do you mean? I'm like, what's the first thing you think you have to do? It says on the board. And it was an interesting take. You know, some of the kids, I have a kid that has only been coding for two days, solved the problem. Because he was like, oh, okay what is angle A? What is angle B? What is angle C? Okay. If I add angle A, you know, and he wrote it and I was laughing and I was like, I like you. You're cool. You're, we're keeping you. You've only been in this school one year. I, I like you. And, and then I had kids that I know could solve the problem in code, but they couldn't formulate the question. And because the code, like you said, if it's Python was such an easy language for me to pick up as a never code before person, because I could say it in English. And so it was a, it's one of those days.
2: <laughs> if you want to be really mean to your students, you could take Sean's story, get them. It's like, how would you program to find out what are the two furthest points from each other from the U.S. and, and then push it a little bit because then you say, remember, the Earth is a sphere, and so mm-hmm. it may God. not be a straight line on a plane. It may be, you know. And so, and what would you choose from? But how would how would you do that one? I think it was. What struck me is it's a pretty cool kind of challenge. I I love to do those challenges with students. And, you know, well, in a couple ways, you know, because one, you could say you're going to hit these in your projects. I really work a lot with, you know, with students with projects. And so, you know, the challenges are going to be the things in the language that help you to think about, oh, I can use this part in this project or things there. And then that's where we'll get a lot of things uh, running in the in the classroom but also it's like you know push people out of your comfort zone and it wasn't as much a programming project but one of our projects here so the Pantanal is region in Brazil that's the world's largest inland wetlands i believe so it's along the mountains and in the border and you know so we're on a project there and we're like okay you know make some models and using you know Crash and but little little programmable devices. It was before Arduino, but like Arduino and and the computers and programming and do this and and make something. And so, the day we arrived there, the temperature was ninety degrees and the humidity was ninety percent. And so, man, it was hot. So, what did the students want to do? The students wanted to. How do we cool down the classroom? And it was a residential school. How do we cool cool down the classrooms and the dormitories, and the classrooms? All the buildings are small and they're just with you know. They had windows on just two sides, so you couldn't quite get cl- cross ventilation. Had an angled roof so that, and there was a little window up at the top over the door. And you think, all right, how do you cool this down? Given that you only have a few fans, right? How do you cool this down for everybody? And when you say cool it down, what does it really mean? So the students, students at that school, middle school students, looked at us and say, "Well, you guys are all from MIT. You must know this exactly." We're like. Man, it beats the hell out of us, yes. you know, we didn't right. know. And, and it was like, so it was great. They saw was that when we took that challenge and we dived in with them, that was like a key moment that it wasn't like we weren't afraid to show that we didn't know or, well, no, let's choose another project or, or whatever, because we're totally confused. But it was a really good thing.
0: You know, I find it interesting too, like the, the most important part or the most interesting part of it is not the answer, Right. It's, it's setting up the problem, it's defining the problem, and then the process that you go through, um, you know, and the various paths that you take. I mean, to Kelly's point, you know, like we can put literally any problem on the board, right? And if it's a well-designed problem, it means that students have almost an infinite number of approaches that they can take to solving it. And there may not be one right answer. I mean, something like, a, you know, calculating the number of triangles, is this a triangle or not, based on the angles, yeah that's probably yes or no right it's a binary outcome but you know for a really well designed problem the answer becomes the least important part of the whole thing right yeah. um especially from a learning perspective do you have you seen that in other places like the you know in the the work that you've done with you know say one laptop per child or with the uh, the mindful making lab that you're you're working in now like Is that something that you encourage? How do you encourage that? How do you bring that part to the forefront?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I I think the key thing referred to this is that if we're really thinking about learning, because basically, you know, again, who who knows, you know, 10 years from now, all right, so our kids are in middle school now, so they'll be, you know, in their 20s, 10 years from now, what are they going to have to face? What will they need to know how to do? And it's unlikely you have a, you know, Simple answer right off the top of your head for these things. You really need to have the spirit that, yeah, I like challenges. I want to dive in on this. That it's like, well, I don't know. How do I start to figure this out given that I don't know? And all you know, right, now they'll call it resilience, but have the capacity to keep at it until we get a solution. And this is what I tried to write about in Emergent Design, which is basically a lot of the times as you're going through this, things pop up right? You don't have a total view at the beginning, and then something you see, whether advantageous or disadvantageous. And then it's like, how do you build on that? Or how do you get around that and do that? Language in education, unfortunately, is kind of, Minsky used to call there's too many like suitcase words. And a suitcase word is like, just take a suitcase, pile a bunch of stuff in it, and it's all there. So like, project and problem, Uh, working with a group of teachers in Tennessee a couple years ago, We define project and problem exactly the opposite, but exactly in the same way, right? So we always talk about project-based learning and trying to say, here's the project here I'm going to do. And as you build your project, all these problems show up and you solve those. But for them, it was the exact opposite. Oh, yeah, give a good problem at the beginning. And then I don't know how they define project, but it was basically. So it was the meaning and intent that was the key thing, not that we call it this and you call it that.
1: Yeah, I was I was thinking when you were talking. I'm like, oh yeah, all these words are popping up as you're talking. I'm like, oh yeah, design thinking. Oh yeah, critical thinking. Oh, problem solving. We've been we've been so worried about all these names of educational, you know, what's its that we forget the major the major point of the story. The major major point of the story is getting kids to think. To Just think, you know, how how does that happen while giving them something to solve? If we give them all the same thing to solve or if everyone has, like Sean said, the same exact cookie cutter answer, there's really no thinking or problem solving involved. It's just getting, as Will Richardson said a couple weeks ago at our our thing, it's just being schooled, schooled how to solve your answer versus learning how to solve a problem.
2: So um, That's that's where computation is really critical. Because your program works or it doesn't, right? It satisfies your objectives or not. And you have this kind of concrete feedback about, am I thinking about this well or not? That's not just a matter of opinion. And then you get kids, as they really start to get into it, you get this idea, like you can have in mathematics also about, well, that's a beautiful proof. That's really nice code. So it's not just, you know, did it work? But even like, you know, what ideas did it use? How was it put together? Was it expressed eloquently? And let's say in history or current events is like, you know, to take, you know, the horrors that are going on now, it's like, should they enforce a no-fly zone over Ukraine? Nobody has the right answer to that, right? And, and you know, you can take arguments on both sides and then you just have to go through that. but And this is why I really think both the computation and the mathematics in education are so important, because it's the only place you can really prove something or disprove something, show that it works or show that it doesn't work. And as the projects get more sophisticated, you have to think in more sophisticated ways in order to deal with them. And it's shareable. So it's like the way that, you know, other people can comment. You can see what it do. You can include other people's ideas. But it's one of the reasons I think no matter what you go into, it's really an important talent to develop.
0: The other role that I like that computation plays is is the the two different, you know, I'm sure it's many different levels. There's kind of the computation that you can hand off to a device versus the computation and the thinking process that you It must keep inside your head. And I always think back to when I was growing up and then I took a long pause from being involved in education from after grad school until I started teaching again. But when I was growing up, there was always the disclaimer, well, you're not always going to have a calculator with you. So you're going to need to know how to do this computation or this calculation uh, on paper or in your head. And literally since I left college, I've had a calculator with an arm's reach of me ever since, right? Or a
2: watch or a phone. or or,
0: (laughs) Yeah, right now it's even more than that, which is you're not always going to have an encyclopedia with you. Well, I kind of do. I have these information access devices. I have computational devices that are available to me. And when you extrapolate out, the direction, that vector that it's taking in terms of the the capabilities of those devices, it makes the importance of them and the importance of understanding what they can do well and what you can do well as a thinker Mm. to be even more important. So this idea that having a calculator nearby is a fantastic tool and it helps you offload those calculations and those computations that are not necessarily core to your problem, or maybe things that you don't want to spend your time on to to do. Computational devices in addition to just the calculations, but the programming that we do, the coding that we do, the way that we set up the problem enables the person, the the learner to really focus their learning on the things that are those more abstract, the the relational, the the making connections, the problem solving and away from the the rote calculations that we've emphasized in the past like when I was growing up. As you think about Computations, and as you think about like how to emphasize that, have you seen anything that you can share with other teachers and other educators around how to appropriately position this idea of calculations and and offloading calculations versus keeping some of the computation and the, the thinking in your
2: own head? Yeah, you know, it, it's our challenge now, right? And I think Seymour used to say something like, uh, you know, making a fire used to be an essential skill, right? <laughs> Not so much in the last few centuries, right? That You've gotten past that. So, yeah, it used to be, but now, no. And it was never the most important part about developing mathematical or computational thinking, right? Never. You know, it was always this other stuff. And so, and I think it was where, in, on my personal trajectory, I went wrong. Because, you know, when I was young, I was really fast at being able to calculate quickly and, and you know, correctly. And then when I had to do real mathematics, I'm thinking, "Hey, I'm great at math," and all of a sudden it's like, "Oh my God, I don't know what to do." You know, and, right. and this is where the deep part of the mathematics is. This is why we would care about it, and it's why, yeah, offloading it to machines, absolutely. You know, why bother with that? And I think it is the great, some of the most inspirational part about working with Seymour and working at the lab at MIT was that this was the thinking, but that computation opened up to this rich doing of mathematics of doing real mathematics and not just arithmetic it opened up things that were really hard to think about otherwise and then you realize it's not that oh i'm not good at math it was like no i didn't really have the right environment in which to do math or think about math and all of that other people have picked this up now conrad wolfram has the book the math fix which i i like and and Keith devlin from stanford is you know he does these nice projects and high school level, but really needs to be all the way through school. So the hard part is, is like, how do you affect this change? How do you get it so that people see, oh no, you're, you know, that's an essential skill and you're robbing our kids from the chance to develop because you're focusing on this other stuff, as well as, you know, from, even from the supporter side, if you take the depth and the meaning and out of the mathematics in order to make it more palatable you're actually making the problem worse and again this is where i think computers because make a difference because it opens up so many more spaces for this exploration investigation for projects for problems but does it still By so by programming you're still expressing your ideas in a formal language and you have to express it well where the bigger part is how do i solve this as you were saying And But now there's so many more things that can happen. And so it isn't only you have the chance for diversity in this learning by doing, diversity of thought, diversity of interest, diversity of approaches, that was too rigid before. And a lot of people just fell out of it, either because they didn't see the purpose or they never really quite got this part. And then everything built on that later. And, you know, so instead of thinking as like, uh, you know, of the strong things in Piaget, young children really developing mathematical knowledge through their interaction in the world. And then when these things come together, so the classic example of like little kids will say one, two, five, seven, three, twelve, 12, right. And they're happy. They know the names of the, of the numbers, but you know, then they'll also do things like, all right, help set the table for we're having two more people and everybody has a plate and everybody has a fork and, you know, and all of this, and you get this mapping, you know, so you get the, the you know, join between ordinality and cardinality. And then all of a sudden there's this huge boost of what they do. And it really is the mathematics for understanding the world and things that you can do in order to get that. Now we really extend that because the way of representing it, the way of interacting with it, isn't just through written symbols on paper. You know, nothing wrong with that. So I'm not saying don't do that. But I am saying is that it's really extended by the kind of things we can express computationally to do all different kind of things. And man, this for me this is important. But getting that change in perception is is the key part towards getting real change so that it is. I mean, of my failed proposals, this is my fail of the decade even, you know, is that when MIT campus first became totally wireless, there was wireless throughout the whole campus, a professor from mechanical engineering and I said, you know, Lecture labs aren't necessarily the best way to teach this stuff, particularly in introduction to engineering courses. You have the professor who typically, usually, almost always, is the most knowledgeable and experienced in the ideas, you know, Maybe not as knowledgeable about the newest tools that are there, right? But really, in terms of the ideas, they are. So, why do we have them just give the lecture and then you go to the lab a couple days later and you work with someone less experienced in order to do your labs? When we have everything wireless and digi- digital, why don't we just do this right in the classroom? Take some of the problems, work through them with the professor, get the kind of thinking. Well, that got shut down on the basis of, well, it was good enough for you, it's good enough for them. You know? But no, it's like we really can rethink. And restructure how we approach all these other things where computational approaches really, really help. It was you know, <laughs> interesting. I had
0: a, I had a. I'm <laughs> going to go. I have a really good one for this. So my son is in is six years old and he's in first grade and they're teaching him a methodology for doing addition of larger numbers. Right. So it, it actually ends up being a recursive approach where you work down to a base case where you have all of your numbers reduced down to single digits. Then, then you can add those, di- you know, concatenate those digits together to get the final answer. And, you know, it was interesting because he's very proficient at this. Right. He can do it like give him the numbers and he can set it up and he can do the problem. But then I had the conversation with him to say, you know that this there's a idea behind this that you're using called recursion, which is that you keep repeating this and breaking it down until you get to you know like, Base case, right? Something where, and I didn't call it the base case, but until you get down to the individual digits and then you can put them all back together and reassemble it. And that idea is called recursion. And so you should go in and blow your teacher's mind by saying the next time you do this, well, that was a really nice recursive problem and see what they say, right? <laughs> but, but
2: they'll say it, you've it been talking up, to your father again, haven't you? Well,
0: right, right. Now, they know, <laughs> right. They know. But it occurred to me that, you know, that we're teaching these methods that, are an interesting way of solving a problem, right? And this is one of many methods that he's learning. They're giving him options. But this idea of of teaching it as recursion by even saying that it has the ability to go down to a simplest case and then reassembling everything is not a concept that I learned until college, right? No one ever called it recursion when I was learning it. But just having the awareness of these concepts in addition to the rote skills is I think an area where we can start to make these changes. So as we teach computer science, there's the way of teaching it to say, here's the, you know, the syntax and here's the things to memorize and here's the idea to copy and paste and reapply or change the parameters to make it work versus, you no, know, let me explain the thinking behind this. Let me explain the methodology or the approach that we're taking so that to your point, those ideas where I may be more knowledgeable with my experience can be shared and, and adopted by the students so that then they can take those ideas and apply new ways of thinking and new ways of implementation implementation around it.
1: I'm jumping in there <laughs> because this ties in a little bit. So this is, this was my thought process between the both of you. So one of the biggest issues in my mind and what I see and you know I deal with it constantly is coming up with that computational problem so we're used to it, I think, in our classroom, Sean and I, and I did design thinking. So everybody had this agency and everyone made a different project. And it's really hard because at the end of the day, we have to grade it, right? So for most teachers, um, and this is a bad generalization, I apologize in advance if this makes someone cringe, but most teachers were not taught in that manner. And they do not know how to assess somebody's solution that is completely opposite. For example, if a solution seems extremely easy, but it solves the problem really well, is it less worthy of an A than a person who worked 40 hours to develop a really complex like Rube Goldberg solution that doesn't really solve the problem as efficiently? And I think a lot of teachers come up with that issue. What would you say, like how do teachers come up with these problems? One, when they probably never were schooled that way. And two, when they probably don't know how to assess. So, what kind of recommendations, being a person who helps solve major problems in in real life situations, what could you give as some ideas? (laughs) Blow my mind. Again, again, (laughs) solve the world educational system. (laughs) Yeah, you're
2: right. Well, that's exactly right. You know, know, there's a nice book by Kwame Anthony Apaya called, uh, what's it called? Moral Code. But he takes Mm -hmm. four huge issues, uh, binding feet in, of girls in China, duels, sli- slavery, I forget the fourth, but, and it's like, how do they change? And, you know, so sometimes like in education, we get told is like, well, you got to pilot it, you got to, you know, prove it, and you got to do this kind of rigorous testing on it. And then somehow it's going to be magically added to the system. And it doesn't work like that, right? You get these big paradigmatic changes not just by that, although showing these contradictions is important, right? You know, And so it should be that you say, show kids great learning, especially for us, like when they haven't had that opportunity before, the teachers didn't have the opportunity before. And you show the results should say, yeah, why are we doing in this way where so many kids fail? And, but, but it hasn't. But it is, right? So you need these kind of examples to keep building up that make us question some of these things about is, you know, if the grading and assessment are driving what we do, and we know that the grading and assessment is far from perfect, we've got everything turned around backwards. And so how do you start getting things realigned is by, well, showing these contradictions, making these things happen because it shouldn't be grading. You know, I've had the luxury of teaching at university level where you can say, I have an AI grading scheme. And they go, AI really? This can't be good. And you say, (laughs) you get an A or you get an I incomplete until you get your A by doing the work. Because the point that you showed is like, so, and you see that, you know, as kids get older, you really see this. Let's see the, you know, you have this student who was just struggling, failing, and then all of a sudden they made a kind of breakthrough and they went forward. Are they as far advanced as some of the other kids in the class who were ahead? No. But in some ways, for me, they they deserve the best grade. Or some that really create, I used to tell students like this all the time from the beginning of class, which was that don't just do this really short, limited project that you know you can do and you knock it out successfully. I care, I prefer if you take something really hard, really big, only get part way there, but show, yeah, you're really on the way of getting there. That also values more. On the other hand, you don't want to, you know, so this part of making it competitive, or especially the schools where it's like, you have to grave on this set curve. It's like, you know, come on, what is this helping? And where, when you get, you know, I've seen point where like students said, oh, I missed class because I had this kind of, I was really sick or this happened in my family and I missed two weeks and the students won't share notes with me. Because they're worried, oh, well, you missed it. I'm going to do better on the test and you won't occur. Those things are just get in the way of learning. Let's just accept that. No, but we still have to work. You know, we don't want to get fired on certain kind of things. And so you try and make it better and you still try and make it go forward. It's It's, you know, I think we started to look at system change as a learning problem. And that helped a lot. And so we started talking about stealing from my, from economics of microeconomics and macroeconomics. Right? And so in the micro level, you're like working with these kids or this classroom or even this school. And we're doing these kind of things. And how do you advance that? But at the macro level, it's these kind of system things that can really inhibit practice or really expand practice. When, when teachers get rewarded for Computers got into the schools because of really adventurous, really creative, really wonderful teachers. That's where they first came from. And these teachers did wonderful things, almost without exception, with kids doing this way back when with very simple computers. But then it kind of got standardized and not that standards themselves are bad, but that you can't adjust and it became too restricted and you lost what was good. And we started to teach people things, you know, in the name of computer literacy, like Microsoft Office and stuff. You're like, come on, you know, no, teach them how to build one. But, you know, you know, that's not computer literacy, right? But we've advanced since then. And we advanced because of you, other teachers, the teachers that listen to you and others doing more things and pushing on these boundaries and not saying, oh, I got to follow this set thing, but finding your way and your voice with it. In the project in Thailand, when we first got going, we were able to take MIT as an independent study period. So we took January and we made, because we needed to go to lots of places. So we made teams of three, one person that really had a good understanding of learning one person that really had a good understanding of the technology and someone that could speak Thai. Okay. We sent them to all these different places with the idea of like the kids are going to start, or the teachers and some of the kids sometimes were able to do it with both, would, you know, program, learn to program, would make projects, start to get used to project-based learning instead of the kind of road instruction, do things with Lego robotics and stuff like that. And so I think, okay, after this month, everybody's gonna be in relatively the same place, and then we can keep building from that. But no, and it was so dumb on my part not to realize, of course, this is gonna happen. Well, 10 different, you know, 30 different people went to 10 different places. I think it was actually more than that. But each one had their own passions and things. So one was a documentary filmmaker, so in that place, and the head of the center there was love well, photography. So all of a sudden, this part about Constructing and making using computational and digital tools started to include for the whole country what they called photojournalism of telling stories in digital format, which was holy cow. That was great. Someone else and worked in this kind of, it was an indigenous area in the north. And you know, so you had people coming from really, you know, kilometers and kilometers away. So they made a digital magazine so that they could be shared across all these places. And then that's what they did. And you know, so each place kind of took on. The ideas of the people that went there and their enthusiasm, their passion, and being open enough for this liberated the teaching, liberated the students. But then what we were able to do was start to spread people to different places also so that this place wasn't the only place of photojournalism and this place, the place of using robotics for agriculture and this, you know. They started to spread and mix because not everybody in the same place is going to understand the same things. So it was this part about just as we've accepted that students don't just learn something because we told them, nobody, that's changed. Most people accept that. Yeah, yeah, it's not so simple. But it's not, we haven't gotten that far with change in school systems. We try to write the best plan or have the best reform. And then assume that all the teachers and administrators and everybody, the parents, are going to understand what's meant in this plan. And then all of a sudden switch and start doing things in a different way. Well, of course not. Systems need to learn and these kind of things need to learn. And you need to be as thoughtful about systemic learning and as thoughtful about implementation as we are about working with kids. Now, I haven't even gotten to what I had comments from Sean. <laughs> Go ahead.
0: <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, that's... Uh... It's making me think about, about how impossible it is to separate the personalities of the teachers and, and of the administrators from what they're teaching, right? And that, that uh, we maybe have this mythical thought of a standard, like this ideal we're going to be teaching that every student is going to know all of the same things because they've been taught to the perfect curriculum. But that's kind of like making it homogenized, right? Like even if we could do that, is that what we want? Right. Because, you know, students learn in different ways. Teachers teach in different ways. And, and the best things happen when we can mer- marry those two together in exciting, unexpected and different ways that, you know, or that we're that's where the real learning happens. Right. It's not from achieving all the checkboxes on the curriculum plan. It's by going beyond that. Yeah. You, you, you wouldn't
2: want everybody. You wouldn't want the teacher's personality values. To be divorced from the kids. You don't want them to be enforced, you know, so that you're getting an F because you don't believe what I do, right? But, you know, of course not. But is Carol Sperry, who was a New York City school teacher, and then she and colleagues opened the New York Computer School, you know, she always talked. She worked with us in Thailand. She's done amazing stuff. She says, you know, it's it's all based on relationships. And it should be. And that is what makes human, human, you know, social learning so strong. And it's what we in a lot of ways lost going to Zoom. You know, so when Kelly said, it's like, I'm seeing now in the flesh, really, for the first time, as opposed to this little square in my, my screen. And think how much better that makes it, which also often points to the ways that we tend to disempower really great technologies, because we use them in ways that, you know, obviously, it's not as good as being together, you know, in a group. You know, and so, yeah, it's better than not being able to be together at all. But let's use the computers for where they really have moved the world forward so much, much more than just in this other way that is kind of like, you know, not so powerful. Kelly, I've stopped you three times, so please.
1: No, it's okay. <laughs> I just take notes, anyways. So I was thinking, because we get this question a lot about sharing our curriculum, and I haven't been able to nail it down really, because And not to say that we're completely unique, but I I do believe I didn't get into coding because of the people I met who tried to teach me how to code. I'm not a coder. I was a biology major. Rote learning was my thing. You know, tell me to memorize the parts of a nucleus and cell. I'm on it. And parts of the bones. But I think what the difference is, and Sean, when we were teaching and how we developed our course was... We have basic minimums. And I think this would go the same for any any course out there. I would, I would, you know, go to any school and say this can happen. But our basic minimums are, one, can they code? What definition is that? could be anything. Can they code in Turtle? Can they write a simple username, password? Can they code first? And if they do not know how to code or do something yet, can they search for a possible solution to help them solve it? And I think like we've bet and made our whole curriculum on that. Everything's at a basic level of that. And everything that we do above and beyond is just icing on the cake. So I, I, I was just, that's what I got from all of you guys talking. Sorry. That was my summary because we, we have five minutes left <laughs> and I could, we could stay with you forever. And I'm going to say this before Sean says, if you ever need someone to come to Chile to help all your <laughs> teachers learn Python, I, we are the ones to go. I am, I speak somewhat Spanish (laughs) and Python's English. (laughs) I'm
0: I'm a really nice person and sometimes funny. So I have (laughs) at least that. No, it would be Um, great. I I think, Holly, I think it really brings up an interesting point here. And, and, and David, do you think you articulated it very well? Is that intuitively everybody knows this, right? This is something that everybody knows, even if they haven't thought about it. Because no one ever says, you know, that seventh grade English curriculum was the best, right? <laughs> like, oh, I loved it so much. Like, they, you can tell they put the time into it. No, they say my seventh grade English teacher was the best. She cared about me. She taught me things in a new way. I remember the things that she taught me because of who she was. Or that ninth grade physics teacher was amazing because he did, you know, these labs with us that I loved and the way he told he got us to learn was because he was really funny or you know any of those things along the way it's not about the curriculum it's about the person that is creating that environment for a learning. So I think maybe we should change our our standard response to say the important thing that we're sharing is not our curriculum. it's you. it's you are the one that is the most important thing in the learning and we are here to help you and support you. With the conversations that you need, the the training that you need to think differently about these things, the skill development, the the mindset, the approach—not the here's your curriculum. There there yeah. is no perfect curriculum. It's the it's the people and the relationships
2: that matter. Yeah, it's really true. And people also value more the idea of narratives. So that how you think about things, you know, how this kind of goes is being really important. And and so you have the idea of relationships, which you build better. Not just by one person talking the whole time and everybody else kind of taking notes, but by doing things together. And that is where your values, your ideas, the creativity really shows up. And then doing things where the teacher is also doing, you know, this becomes really, you know, this is what you want to get. The last time I taught the intro to computation course, a couple things with that. One is that all the students had cell phones in this class in Brazil. And I asked them, how many apps, you know, are coming from Brazil and none or very few. How many apps did you make? You put any app on your phone. And that was like blew their minds. Like, why would we try to do that? Started the class then by, there was a nice music video, popular music kind of, you know, really good. Although I played it so often as I was developing the material, I kind of got tired of it. But, and I worked through how it has an animation as the music video to the music. We, I started the class by, how would we make this? What would you think about? And we started to deconstruct it together. Not deconstruct, it together, then look at it, deconstruct it, and then modify it in their own kind of way. So like reading programs as much as writing programs and doing it to do something creative and not just like, you know, how do you work through a four loop or something like that. And yeah. doing the things together made it much more interesting for everybody. Because I know when I teach, if I'm teaching something I don't like, I'm a really lousy teacher.
0: Do you ever have one of those moments where, you know, and I'm starting to feel this where you realize just how many different things you've been involved in over the course of your career and, and how like how they start to become cumulative, like the effects of having these different experiences and different uh, portions of your both education, the work that you've done tend to build on top of each other and layer on top of each other in the way that you do your current work today. I mean, just looking at your bio, like a, you're more than just the, the words that are on the page, but. You know, someone that, that has been involved in a lot of these key moments. You know, working at the MIT Media Lab laboratory or working with One Laptop per Child. These have been you know kind of key milestones in learning and computation. But as a as the person who's lived through that, how does that kind of affect you the way you view the world today? <laughs> how much time do you have? <laughs> you
2: know, uh, yeah, you know, it's. I think what's important from my point of view, or is, is that No matter what I was doing, the focus is always on learning and learning from it. And then, where you know, what you're actually contributing, you know, so trying to be in the position where your ideas and your actions can really matter in as many dimensions as you want, but also that you you do build from previous experience. You don't want each thing to be such a discrete uh, experience that then there's no continuity. And of the things I admired about Seymour was that, you know, from the beginning, and this is in since the early 60s, you know, the focus was on how programming computers can really help for learning in ways that other media do not. But, you know, this is in the early 60s. So, of course, everybody said it was crazy. Even Watson from IBM said, oh, maybe, you know, a school system will have a computer for data processing. But Kids won't program them. And, and you know, so really looking at, so with rudimentary computers still doing extremely powerful things in the development of Logo and how you could think about math or do mathematics in a different kind of way. But what changed and what I admired, each project that Seymour went to, and I think we've carried this on, built from learning from the previous ones what went well, what didn't go so well, how can you improve it, so that it wasn't, again, a bunch of discrete experiences, but we're constantly thinking because nobody has the answers to any of these things. How do we learn best? Well, we're still figuring that out. You know, what's the best way to use computation? You know, Alan Kay likes to say, we're still in the stone age in regarding these things. And so, you know, what will computation look like, you know, 30 years from now? Yeah. We hope very different from now, but it doesn't mean, well, don't do anything now until then. You only get to the future by hacking your way through the present.
0: Well, David, thank you for doing this with us. Thank you for doing this together. My kids um, are- it's, been, it's been great to chat with you. I know Kelly's got students banging at the door ready to go. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I know we would love to continue our conversation in the future. So thank you very much for joining us. I'm going to sign us off here just by saying if you have thoughts for David, for us, ways to contribute to the conversation, you can find Kelly and I on Twitter. I'm at smtyber. Kelly is at kellypared. You can always submit feedback to us through our website also. It's, at, it's teachingpython.fm. So for Teaching Python, this is Sean.
1: And this is Kelly signing off.